Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the Foreign and Domestic Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Will, uh, and today we're going to talk about a couple things, first of which is Justin Amash's um, presidential run that was, I think, it, uh, not much longer than um, Anthony Scaramucci's tenure as White House Director of Communications, <laughs> if anybody remembers his... <laughs> his, like his, his, his presidential run just... It it barely even started. Yeah, and I mean, I don't, there's not, what he said was he doesn't feel confident he could, like, break through America's partisanship, which, mm-hmm. like, yeah. yeah I, have, like, I have the quote pulled up here. He said, I continue to believe that a candidate from outside the old parties offering a vision of government grounded in liberty and equality can break through in the right environment. But this environment pr- presents extraordinary challenges. So that's not why he's dropping out. Like, mm-hmm. there's, there was no circumstance in which he was ever going to become president. Yeah. Right? And unless he was, like, extremely delusional, which I don't think he is, <sighs> he didn't think he was going to become president. Mm-hmm. So maybe what happened was he you know started sort of whipping votes for the floor vote um in the at the libertarian convention although it'll be virtual so i guess there's no floor um and he found that he didn't have much support which i think is is plausible mm-hmm. um and it, it would have been rather embarrassing to be uh, as, as high profile a figure as he is although i'm not sure if his name id is very high i i doubt it's greater than 25 percent. yeah but he's like a, a significant political figure at least among like people who have takes on stuff mm-hmm. so that would have been pretty embarrassing I, I saw another I, I saw a good meme about it where it was <laughs> three pictures of him. One says, I think I will run for president with the libertarians. And then the second one saying, meets with libertarians for three weeks. And then the third one shows him like running and he says, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Which, yeah. And yeah. like, I don't, I honestly don't think he would have ended up getting the nomination because, you know, like he kind of, like if he was going to join the race um he kind of would have joined late and like they've already had candidates for over a year now and they have like all their votes and all that so i don't think he would be able to get the traction he needed to well i want to push back on that a a little bit Mm -hmm. I, i think that it's possible that he found that like i like i said earlier but I don't think it's necessarily like super significant that people had voted already because it isn't it's not established in the rules that the primary votes are binding mm-hmm. nor is it established as like a norm like even if the votes of say the democratic primary were not binding for those delegates and they're not on the second vote it, it's still there are like norms that would prevent say a democratic delegate from breaking on the first ballot Mm -hmm. whereas like 
the Libertarian Party is not something that's as institutionally established as like a fundamental part of American politics. Mm -hmm. I think the theory there is that you have the delegates to the Libertarian National Convention have expressed interest in promoting their party. And, and, and it seems like like for the party institutionally nominating a mosh would be good. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know that it was necessarily unlikely. I think it's it wasn't as much of a sure thing as some people I feel like had made it out to be, but I don't know. Who knows? I mean only he knows why he drops out dropped mm. out. So but then again, for the libertarian primaries, uh uncommitted one one state, so well, I mean, yeah, it's and it is honestly libertarian primaries function now, I think, kind of like both Republican and Democratic primaries functioned um back before let's say the nineteen seventies, where you wouldn't it wasn't binding. Um you would have people that weren't really running for president running in those primaries i i don't think that's the case in the libertarian party but it was back then mm -hmm. for the democratic and republican primaries they were running just to you know have influence over the delegates um and you would have probably somewhat lower voter turnout because it wasn't it, it didn't necessarily matter that much i mean it was a part of the process and you know this all changed when Jimmy Carter won Iowa in 1976. But people forget that Jimmy Carter didn't win Iowa. Yeah. He came in second to uncommitted. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think it, it might be sort of similar to that, um, where ultimately the party elites would have, although I'm not sure you can describe... <laughs> <laughs> the the libertarian <laughs> convention <and> party elite <laughs> that felt a little mean but also also it's it, you know it's kind of true but i don't know i maybe well there will probably be some more light shed on that um mm. at some point in the future and as much as I hate to say this for those fans of Vermin Supreme, whose main policy plank is giving everybody a pony, I believe, which actually doesn't strike me as very libertarian at all. It's a lot of government intervention. Their own pony, right? Um, which actually, I, just an aside, I, I hadn't seen an update on this, but John McAfee, who's quite a cult, colorful character oh yeah um, <laughs> he, he had been running but he's also like running from the feds or at least he claims he is so he's on a boat somewhere what so then he yeah it, 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 it's weird some people think he's like making up the whole like the government being after him although he's probably a murderer so that's another thing but he it, it this is way too like the whole saga like john McAfee's too much to get into in like one podcast but like honestly we could have we could have just like an entire episode dedicated yeah. to him 
<laughs> but basically, he he said he sent like posted this message on Twitter saying he was dropping out, but he was like publicly asking to be Vermin Supreme's um, running mate. So <laughs> that mm. that's a power ticket. <laughs> but no, I think it'll be the the guy. I his name escapes me, the, but the one that's um, won those primaries thus far. Mm-hmm. And he'll probably receive a segment of the vote, maybe similar to Gary Johnson did in 2016, and you know, nothing much will come Aleppo. of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at least that got his name in in, in the papers. Th- that's right? what everybody remembers him for. Is it is? You it don't is. know what Aleppo is? Yeah, <laughs> what's Aleppo? Well, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't want him running foreign policy no not at all yeah that's why we have a cabinet ladies and gentlemen but between that and i I saw this there was a poll on twitter and it it was if you had to vote for one would you vote for the libertarian party or the green party Mm -hmm. and for president and i was like well i'd have to say libertarian party because they're just going to ignore foreign policy whereas (laughs) like the green party would like send troops to help assad yeah yeah American boots on the ground to support the regime. Prop up the the Maduro regime in Venezuela. Like that that was just like just opposite American intervention. Just start banking all of our enemies. America is now a a Russian territory. That's (laughs) that's the Green Party's agenda, essentially. Um, (laughs) But I I think it is possible that we could see another high-profile third party or independent candidate jump Mm. for it at some point. Um, Some possible people that might be considering that are Tulsi Gabbard, boo. Oh, God. Um, Howard Schultz had sort of floated this idea, like, it feels like forever ago, um, last year. Mm. He's the, if you don't know, he's the, uh, I'm not sure if he's the CEO of Starbucks anymore, but he was the founder and uh, was the CEO of Starbucks. And he, he floated this sort of, you know, centrist campaign, um, which I, I, I don't think that's really going to go anywhere. Yeah. I, he kind of got bullied out of it and he, he stepped back from it. Um, and then, you know, there are the names everybody talks about, Mark Cuban, but how about that Prohibition Party nominee? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, actually, fun fact. Donald Trump is a teetotaler. Uh, he has not had a, a, a sip of alcohol in many, many years because his um, his older brother died of alcoholism. So he uh, Interesting. So he might have an appeal to people who who might be inclined to support the, uh, the prohibition the t- the temperance party. movement. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Although all, all five of them. Yeah. I mean, I, Donald Trump has some stupid policy positions, but I, I certainly don't think that one of them is bringing back prohibition. So <laughs> I'll, I'll give him that. <laughs> but, oh, yes. um, so, sort of moving on, the uh, another thing I sort of wanted to talk about on, on the domestic front 
is two Supreme Court cases. Really, we're mainly going to talk about one. There, there were two Supreme Court cases that were deliberated last week, and it's it's actually sort of an interesting dynamic. Um, the Supreme Court deliberating over the phone. You actually saw um, Justice Clarence Thomas, mm-hmm. who is notorious for not asking questions, ask a lot of questions oh. over the phone, which, like raises the question to me is that is it just that he's like not like it is is it like a social aversion like being there and i don't know but um anyway that was interesting he he cited frodo baggins in one of his his comments but the the two cases one was about um congressional democrats and this prosecutor in new york trying to subpoena um financial records of trump's from various financial institutions Mm. that has pretty broad implications for like the scope of presidential power but what i really want to talk about is the second case which is about faithless electors like as you obviously know as i'm sure everybody in that's listening to this knows the electoral college is is made up of people that you don't know uh electors who ultimately vote for president and the the idea that the framers had or actually i I shouldn't there's people often say the framers and ascribe intent to the framers as if they're like a monolith which they weren't like (laughs) they did not agree on a whole lot of stuff like yeah people forget about that the constitution adopting the constitution was a controversial issue back then yeah and like it was able to be adopted because the group that would go on to become the uh, Democratic Republicans and the group that would go on to become the Federalists, um, and, and really they already were, but um, mm-hmm. wrote the constitution. They both supported the Constitution and they wrote it in a way that had concessions to each side, but also was vague on some issues. But I, I do think it is pretty clear um, that the Electoral College was meant to be made up of electors who ultimately have the ability to decide for whom they vote. Yeah. Um, but that's not effectively been the case throughout American history. But in 2016, you had an unusually high volume of faithless electors. Some were Clinton electors who refused to vote for her. Some were Trump electors that, that defected. And you saw this got a little bit more press because there were some who wanted to, like, lobby the Electoral College to overturn the results of the election. Um, Although, (laughs) lobby the Electoral College to really overturn the results of the election that was already decided the way it was because of the electoral as an institution but telling the electoral college to override themselves <laughs> basically um which i mean the existence of the electoral college is a whole other debate which i'm sure it's pretty clear what side i am on mm. I, I i don't think it should functionally exist i but i, I think this is really interesting because this case is about whether um, states have the right to prohibit electors 
from casting votes that go against how that delegate was supposed or how that electoral vote was supposed to be allocated. Um, and I, I think that's something pretty interesting for the court to grapple with. Um, and it, it, it seems like they're not going to rule with the electors, which is not... I'm actually kind of surprised they took this case because it has this sort of duality where in if you rule against the electors, you're sort of almost rebuking the intent of the Constitution. Mm. But if you rule in favor of the electors, you descend American elections into further chaos. Yeah, I, th and, I think I think I... I agree with the states on that one because I, I don't think we should really be in, encouraging faithless electors. No, and I mean, it's like in, in many ways I'm like a, a small R Republican. Like, I'm not a fan of like referendums and mm -hmm. whatnot because, you know, the average citizen just doesn't have the time to you know, get into the nitty gritty of like some obscure policy issue. So asking to vote on it is kind of unfair. Yeah, especially with such a large country that we have. Like referendums yeah. work better in smaller countries, and we have over well, three hundred million people. Referendums so. don't don't happen on the national level, but a lot of states have. Them. Yeah. Like California, in particular, is notorious for having a whole lot of referendums. Um, but. I think that in this case, you can't really, there's no alternative here than to the popular vote, mm -hmm. right? In the sense that, like, putting aside the, the issue of the electoral college, then that the electors should have to remain faithful to how their state voted, or, or not necessarily, how their state allocates, allocates their delegates. Yeah. Which... Actually, that's another implication. I'm, I'm not sure if this is something on the table, but this is just something that popped into my head here. If the Supreme Court were to rule that, say, states that electors had to vote with the, like, had to vote for the candidate that received the majority of their state's votes, rather than saying the, the elector had to vote as their vote had been allocated by state law, that would deal a, a death blow to something called the Interstate Compact, which is this project um, by Democrats, essentially, to eliminate the Electoral College um, through a roundabout solution, which basically how it works is you take as many states as you can and get them to pass this law. Mm -hmm. And this law only goes into effect once enough states constituting 270 electoral votes, or that how much you need how many you need to win, have passed this law. And when this law goes into effect, it states that each state that has passed this law will allocate its electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote. Yeah. So that, in essence, would make the Electoral College irrelevant mm -hmm. and 
a, a thing of the past. Interesting just concept. A fun technicality. So that is one thing. I, again, I'm not sure if this is something that could be included in the ruling, but but that's just a thought. Yeah. And then if we want to then move on to another sort of thing that's been happening in American politics this week and last week was sort of the reemergence of Barack Obama as like a political figure. As with most presidents, his approval rating has risen since he left office and he's the he's the most popular political figure in the country aside from Michelle Obama. Mm. And and like he's um, he's kind of been like sort of in the shadows for a while. He hasn't really been speaking up about electoral issues for yeah, a long I mean, time and now he's First of all, I think I think he's tired, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, honestly, like eight years of administration probably honestly has gotten to him. And so, yeah, he, he probably definitely wants a break from politics because obviously it's a, it's a very stressful business. So, yeah, much, much nicer to hang out on Jordan's yacht, but exactly. I also think it's because, you know, he's he felt that, um, the Bush administration was very good to his administration during the transition. Mm -hmm. And he admired the way that Bush did it with grace and like, didn't criticize him. He, the actions that Obama took, um, after Obama had run a campaign that was really flying in the face of like the Campaign, the campaign that Obama ran in 2008 was against the Bush legacy more than it was against John McCain. Yeah. Like, in reality. So, I, I think he admired that and wanted to do that himself, even if the, the person he, he was hoping to, you know, treat with some respect was somebody who had no respect for him at all. But I think it's pretty clear that he's reached his his limit with um and he, he has made some statements but he, he became even more explicit when he endorsed joe biden and i think the plan already had been that he would be an active figure in the 2020 election and i think yeah. that's actually something that we're gonna have to grapple with as a country like Barack Obama is this insanely popular um, politician, especially within the Democratic Party, and this mm -hmm. like transformational figure. And he's not like even sixty yet. Yeah, he's he's still quite young, like politics wise. So he, he's gonna be around for like ever. <laughs> yeah, we we gotta like be prepared for him to be an influential figure even after yeah. the presidency because you know his endorsements and his words still hold a lot of weight especially with democratic supporters and and i think he will i think what he'd like to do is step into sort of the the role that jimmy carter held which he he too was president at a, a relatively young age yeah and and then went on to have a, an ex-presidency in which he became a widely popular like humanitarian mm -hmm. leader I think Obama wants to step into that role. And I think that um, would be a good role for him to step into as well. 
Yeah, but he also is faced with the Democratic Party that isn't, like, it doesn't have a sole figurehead. Like, functionally, right now, the Democratic Party is being run by Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Symbolically, uh, Joe Biden is the the head of the Democratic Party. I mean, mm-hmm. he's because he's, he's, he's the presidential unofficial nominee. nominee. Um, but the party doesn't have this like sole unifying figure, and I, I think that you saw some of that problem in 2008 when Barack Obama actually wasn't a sole unifying figure and actually part of the way that that was handled was for Bill Clinton to campaign with Mm -hmm. and at the time Bill Clinton was this immensely popular (laughs) former president and 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 so the cycle goes but I, I think Obama will be able to step back into more of the role we were talking about once the Democratic Party has its sort of its future assured. Yeah. Um, but I think what's really interesting now is that he sort of stepped into this role. He, like, as as explicitly as he is going to, he criticized Trump and the Trump administration, and I think Republicans more broadly, um, in his sort of virtual commencement speeches that he gave. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of parallel to that, there's been this whole saga with Obamagate, which is sort of this like ill-defined um, a- a- attempt by Donald Trump and Bill Barr to m- materialize some sort of wrongdoing they're, they're sort of trying to flip the whole like russia investigation on it yeah i i, I don't really it. understand the obama gate no thing. yeah it's, it's kind of nobody confusing. does like <laughs> it, it, nobody understands it and, and when pressed on it even um i think today bill barr uh the attorney general said no like we're not going to bring charges against obama or biden and mm-hmm. it's but this sort of, I think, stemmed from Michael Flynn. Was Charges were dropped against Michael Flynn, um, uh, what, two weeks ago now? And, yeah. and that sort of ignited a little bit of a firestorm. And, like, that's somewhat more of a nuanced issue than some would portray it. Mm-hmm. The practices that the FBI used to get Michael Flynn to plead guilty were, I think, pretty clearly not... Like, they basically forced him. Yeah. Quite quite unorthodox, I guess. Well, I wouldn't even say unorthodox, though, because they were wrong. Like, ideally, this is not the way that you would have the law enforcement agency acting mm-hmm. that being said i don't think it's such an abnormal like i i don't think it's completely abnormal for the fbi to act that way especially when dealing with high level administration officials mm-hmm. and 
I, I do think, in retrospect, as somebody who spent much of, you know, 2017, 2018, following these threads of the Russia investigation, there are some areas in which some people at, say, like MSNBC or the Washington Post and some Democratic politicians may have gone overboard insofar as they they made claims that there wasn't necessarily evidence to support. Yeah. Like, th this whole Trump is a Russian agent thing, I... I I mean that that was kind of always ridiculous. Like he he's too stupid to be an agent of anything. But I do think that there there were really troubling connections between his campaign and Russia, um, and there were troubling aspects to how he acted with regards to Russia. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily think there yeah. was any collusion or anything but obviously and, you know and in in so far as like i i don't want this to say that I, I don't want i i certainly still think that the the ukraine situation was an impeachable offense mm -hmm. and quite frankly i, I have a fairly wide-reaching opinion on impeachment and what it can and should be used for. And I really think that there didn't even legally need to be sort of Russia stuff for him to be impeached. Like, he, he, he's so clearly incompetent at the job, and that became evident so quickly that it should have happened very yeah. quickly. Well, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's a discussion for another time. No, yeah, like... I, I feel like I've digressed here, but yeah. basically what I'm saying is um, the Trump administration has sort of tried to turn this around mm -hmm. into this uh, Obamagate thing. And I think politically, like just taking my own perspective out of it, I've been repeatedly baffled by like how bad Donald Trump has been at politics, which people sometimes like want to ascribe a certain political genius to him because he he won in 2016 but i think that might be overlearning the lesson like he 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 tapped into a certain something um and was able to swing some voter he he was able to consolidate the republican party and then he was able to swing some voters in key states to allow him to win with a of the popular vote but he's really especially in the past few months acted in ways that are just objectively bad for him politically like th this is somewhat crass to talk about but the this pandemic was a political opportunity for him mm -hmm. he, he could have seized on this and capitalized on it um and i think most other presidents would have um, and for evidence of this, you only have to look as far as like sort of Republican governors 
in states that have been pretty quick and um, decisive with the response to responses to the coronavirus, like Charlie Baker, um, Larry Hogan, Mike DeWine in particular, his approval rating is in the 80s, which is crazy. That is, that is pretty insane, yeah. Like, what what politician would kill for that? And 80% approval rating, that's insane. And now, after pretty much botching that opportunity, Trump has decided to align himself in this sort of standoff with Barack Obama, which I think you will see uh, Obama's favorability ratings start to come back down to earth a little bit as he becomes more politicized again. But he's still a really popular figure. Yeah. And like, if I was Donald Trump... Honestly, I wouldn't want to be running against Joe Biden, but I certainly wouldn't want to be running against Barack Obama. And if, if that's sort of what he's positioning himself as being, that's, I, I, I think, incredibly foolish. <laughs> but Yeah, I think, okay. I think he is lucky that he doesn't have to run against Obama. Well, he's sort of framing it in that way, and I think Obama will be active on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. Or, or the the campaign URL, as it might be, but <laughs> the it, online campaigning. Yeah, I I think that depending, I I would also mention that people have been sort of critical of um, Joe Biden's sort of basement strategy, where he's not really been out there a bunch. Um while all of this has been going on but i feel like that criticism the criticism there that's implicit is that joe biden is just like basically running as a generic democrat Mm -hmm. and and to that i would say like it i don't think polls like this have been done recently but like go look at how generic democrats poll against trump it's like (laughs) it's very good yeah it's like if you could run like just a, a stick figure with the head of like a donkey, like just a generic Democrat, a lot of people want that. And I, I think with Hillary, because here you have everybody that politicians usually in, in this era are more. Elections seem to be more decided on the the debits, like the the detractions from their their flaws rather than their strength. Yeah. And like decisive factors in the twenty sixteen election were some of the baggage that Hillary Clinton had, mm-hmm. and I it could be easily argued I think that if she were a, a, a generic Democrat she would have won that election. Of course, nobody is a generic Democrat by definition. Um, but anyway, that, that that's a criticism of, of Biden's strategy that I think is somewhat disingenuous and is mostly being launched by people who would who are bitter about the way the Democratic primary resolved. But um, 
anyway, I, I think that's most of what we're going to talk about. If you want to, do we want to talk a little bit about sort of some of the newer developments with uh, China? Yeah, sure. That, that sounds good. Like uh, yeah, China's sure. China's sort of resurgence of the virus. Yeah, I actually, I, I, I hadn't seen that there were, are there increasing case numbers in China now? Uh, that's what I've heard, but um, basically um, there's a renewed lockdown in China uh, with mm. regards to the virus. Um, Bloomberg reported that over 100 million people are facing this, and um, I've, he I've heard that cases are returning to China, and um, either either they are returning actually, or the Chinese government lied to us and they just still have a, an outbreak or something like that, but right now it, ju it just seems like the cases are returning, and I've seen things like that. There's also like something going on with like a investigation or something into China or whatever. I think that's has to do with uh, the U.S., but basically I, I've, I've seen that China is locking down their country again. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. in terms of, like, the, the domestic politics in the, of this, I've actually been pretty pleased with um, how, how that sort of played out. Mm -hmm. If you look at some polling, like, 70% of Americans blame China for, to some extent, for how, how this pandemic has played out, which... It's very rare that you see any uh, anywhere near that number of uh, Americans agreeing on a contentious political issue. Yeah. So, and I also think this was really sort of somewhere where I give the Biden campaign a lot of credit. Instead of falling into, I think, the the situation that the Trump campaign had, had wanted them to, where... Trump has engaged in this sort of faux hawkishness on China. And I think they wanted to push Biden into this sort of almost pro-China box. But Biden's been pretty hawkish on China for, for mm -hmm. a while. Like, he's... He, I, I think he's pretty well understood as... Another... <laughs> I know we talked about one last episode but another like sort of intra i don't know democratic party split at least among sort of hawkish people in the democratic parties between you know wh whether we should be focusing our foreign policy on or on great power conflict or more on sort of smaller scale conflicts yeah um in like the middle east and especially having to do with terrorist groups and Biden, I think, has been understood for quite a while as a proponent of the form. Um, and I think he's done a really good job of, of criticizing and pointing out the hypocrisy in the Trump administration's um, response to the coronavirus. I mean, like, I, I would just like to ponder for a minute the... <laughs> What Donald Trump would say if, if this had happened in the, in say, 2016, right? And Obama was president. And if Obama had shift, 
shipped like a whole lot of personal protective equipment to China in the early um, months of this pandemic. He would be making hay out, but actually the Trump administration did just that. And I'm not necessarily saying that was the wrong thing to do. I think in this case, you do have to have regard for public health and just do what you can to try and stop the virus. And that includes sending um, necessary equipment where it's most needed. Mm -hmm. But I just think that doing that, but then also claiming to be this sort of anti-China administration is so disingenuous. And you even see something like, (laughs) there's this plan that's been rolled out by the Trump administration to have a trade deal between some Southeast Asian countries and the United States. Um, and, And the purpose of that is to push back against Chinese influence over global trade. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you might remember a, a, a similar trade deal that was entered into by Barack Obama called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Oh, we talked which, about that in an episode. Yeah, which subsequently was left by Donald Trump. So it's... I. I just think the the Biden campaign is taking the right tact on this. They're um, criticizing Trump for trusting Xi Jinping in the beginning stages of the outbreak. And I just think that's that's the right tact politically. Mm-hmm. And it's also the right tact morally like <laughs> and policy-wise. It's, it's a win-win-win-win-win. Yeah. Essentially. So back on the topic of the lockdown... Yeah. Um, I just looked it up. Basically, if um, a few more countries have basically reimposed lockdown, countries that sort of like were laxing their restrictions, they basically um, had a spike of infections. This is, includes China, Germany, Iran, South Korea, Lebanon, and Saudi Arabia. They basically had um, a spike of coronavirus cases. Um, China, I know China had 34 new cases and one death reported um and so and that was in the northeast of china and so basically all these countries are reimposing their lockdown because while they were in lockdown the cases were going down but as soon as they started uh laxing restrictions the cases started to go up so it's coming back to these countries basically so just like off the bat i have have some skepticism of that 34 number like that that seems yeah. shocking like whoa mm-hmm. Although, for, for, for what's described as a spike it's it's yeah yeah i i mean to to, to lock down 108 million people over 34 coronavirus cases yeah either, yeah either they're lying which i think is certainly possible and, and the numbers are much bigger or that really is the case and they're I think a lot of what the Chinese government has done during this pandemic has has really been geared towards earning like geopolitical acclaim, mm-hmm. right? So if if they are seen 
being very responsible on the back end or, or maybe even overcautious, that might detract, although it certainly shouldn't, from their recklessness and irresponsibility on the front end. Yeah. it's It says here that... Um... They removed, um, in the in one of the provinces, or wait, uh, no, this is a city, uh, the city of Shulan. They removed the highest ranking, uh, party official there and um, five other officials, um, from like their positions as a result of the outbreak. The uh, CCP did. Yeah, I mean, that's. I, I think that kind of jives with their approach thus far, mm-hmm. which has been, you know, scapegoating who they can um, and using propaganda, which, like, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to include, um, well, you know what, this is, this is something for a political oddity episode, but there's this Chinese rap group that's literally just propaganda. Oh man! That's that's trying to um, influence um, <laughs> the, the young people <laughs> in the West, the, the hip youth, into supporting the Chinese Communist Party. Because <laughs> that, that's yeah. what the cool kids do. The cool kids support the CCP. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, All right, uh, is yeah. there anything more you want to add about that? I think that's it. Okay, well, it's right. been a long one, but uh, this has been an episode of Turning Domestic. I'm Will. And I'm Jake. And we'll see you next time. Everybody's seen my old friend Bill.